the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Grace and peace to you and welcome to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Azaro, the senior pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now this is a church that exists to help people just like you. Find the real life you were created for and find it to the full. That's what Jesus promised in John 10.10. And today we continue in a series called Us and Them. And the theme is, there is no us and them, there's only us. Pastor Sean will encourage you to see the world the same way Jesus does with something called love. That's how the gospel message reaches the world and those in need of a Savior. Reallife.org has this full message, sermon notes, and series available for free. But if you feel led right now to bless this listener-supported radio ministry, then please do. There's a place to give at reallife.org. The name of this message is called Learning to See. Pastor Sean is teaching from Luke 7 and Ephesians chapter 2. It's time for Reaching for Real Life Radio. If you have your Bibles, why don't you do me a favor, turn to Luke chapter 7. We'll get there in just a moment. I want to cover a couple things first. We've start, we're in this campaign we started last week called Us and Them. And you remember we began with this idea. When it comes to being broken by sin, there is no us and them. There's just us. And that's kind of the problem. I think we look at people out there maybe, people who don't follow Jesus. Maybe there are certain types of sins that are particularly bothersome or inconvenient for us. And we, oh, those people. And that's the heart of the Pharisees. That's what, that's what we saw last week. Matthew invites Jesus to his home, and Matthew had been a tax collector. A bunch of his friends were really broken and sinful people. And the Pharisees were like, how can you do this? It was like this unrighteous thing, mingling with people like this. And Jesus brought a very gentle but powerful word of rebuke. Now, I didn't come... For those who are well, I came for the sick. It's not the, the, it's not the sick, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick. And I didn't come to call those who are righteous, I called the unrighteous to repentance. And the question that we ask is, well, wait a minute, is that Jesus saying there's some people who don't need forgiveness of sin? Are there some people who, who are well in and of themselves? And the answer was obviously no. The real message he was saying is that When it comes to being broken by sin, there is no us in them. There's just us. Every single one of us, apart from Christ, is broken by sin. And that's just the truth of Scripture. Now, I want to ask you a question as we get started this week. If you had to list some words that non-Christians use to describe Christians, what would those words be? What kind of words do people use? And I'm thinking of people who maybe you work with and who they're not real interested in being part of the church because, well, they have this picture of Christians. We read about it. We hear about it. Here's a few words. What about this one? You ever heard that? Christians are judgmental. They're judgmental. They're always pointing the finger at someone. They're hypocritical. Oh, I can't go to church. That place is full of hypocrites. I've actually told people, well, then you'd be right at home. (laughs) They're narrow, narrow narrow-minded, too narrow in their focus. They're exclusive. They got their own little club, and they know all the rules, and nobody else does, and they hang to themselves. They're mean. You ever heard that? They're mean. Now, now we can sit and we can 
cry about this and go, that's unfair. And, and there are unfair things that are brought. But I have to tell you, I've grown up in church, and I grew up in good churches. I really did. I grew up in some great churches. I knew some wonderful, godly people in those churches. But I also met people who were judgmental, hypocritical, narrow, exclusive, and I've even met a few who are mean. And we have a choice to make when it comes to this. Okay, We can sit and cry foul and say, that's unfair. We're being misrepresented, and I believe that's true. At least in my experience, to a degree, that, that can be true. But you can also stop and consider, why do people think that? Is there maybe some truth to the experience a whole lot of people have had when it comes to Christians that kind of looks like that? 2013 study from the Barna Group regarding Christians and the attitudes of Jesus versus the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. Let me just give you a little bit of what that study covered. It was nationwide, and they surveyed thousands of self-identified Christians. Yes, I am a Christian. And the goal was to determine, are there actions and attitudes? So they, they broke it up into four slots with five questions each that they asked people. Actions and attitudes of Jesus versus actions and attitudes of the Pharisees. 20 questions. And, the people were, and they're answering it for themselves. Here are some of the things that they were, they were asked about. Actions of Jesus, actions like Jesus were like, I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. In recent years, I've influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. I regularly choose to have meals with people of very different faith or morals from me. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. All these things were clear, observable actions of Jesus in the New Testament. Attitudes of Jesus were things like this. I see God-given value in every person, regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God is for everyone. He's on their side. He wants to see them come to new life. I see God working in people's lives, even when they're not following him. It's more important to help people know God. It is more important to, be, it is more important to help people know God is for them than to make sure they know they are sinners. Another attitude of Jesus, I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Those were the actions and attitudes of Jesus. The actions and attitudes of the Pharisees, or self, what they called self-righteous attitudes. Here's the actions. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or my struggles. That's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or the doctrine. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. Those were considered self-centered and very much represented the behaviors of the Pharisees. A self-righteous attitude? I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. People who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. That part, I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values, that can get very difficult in our current political climate. Here's the findings. The findings reveal that that most self-identified Christians in the U.S. are characterized by having the attitudes or actions researchers identified as pharisaical. Just over half of the nation's Christians, using the broadest definition, those who call themselves Christians, qualify for this category, 51%, meaning their actions and their attitudes more represented self-righteousness in the Pharisees than those of Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum, 
Only 14% of today's self-identified Christians, just one out of every seven, seem to represent the attitudes and actions that Barna researchers found to be consistent with those of Jesus. Now remember, this is them filling out the survey for themselves. I wonder if people who knew them might not have even been as generous sometimes in the assessment. That's hard. That's hard to hear. That's really hard to hear. As a Christ follower, Americans evangelical, America's evangelical community, now they didn't even label them that, but the group, the group was defined by Barna based on its theological belief and commitments, not self-identification. They did a little better. 38% qualify as neither Christ-like in action nor attitude according to their responses to those questions, but about one quarter, 23% of evangelicals are characterized, characterized by having Jesus-like actions and attitude, which was higher than the norm. When you hear that, and whether you think that's a fair assessment, whether you think that's a fair look, you begin to understand why people have that perception. We begin to understand why they use those labels when they talk about us. They think Jesus was very different, and I think the key is we need to begin to respond to people who are far from God differently. We need to see differently. What do we see when we look at people? Great passage of scripture in Luke 7. I'm going to begin reading at verse 36. We're told one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. It's interesting. The man thought to himself, so fundamentally, nothing's been said. This woman is here. This is happening in front of a table full of dinner guests. And Jesus just speaks out. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Note that phrase. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? What a powerful question. Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, which was customary. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. Help us to see what you see. Help us to hear your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And this is when we take a quick minute to remind you, you're listening to Reaching for Real Life with Pastor Sean Azaro, a listener-supported ministry of River City Community Church, in this message called Learning to See. The series is called Us and Them, which is available right now on the sermon page at reallife.org. And while you're there, if you've been blessed by this teaching, your gift of any amount helps this radio ministry continue to help others. Just find the Give tab at reallife.org. And Pastor Sean Azaro, now an author, invites you to check out his brand new book. 302 Books, a division of Salem Media Group, presents A Pilgrim's Guide to the Spirit-Filled Life, Rediscovering the Gift of the Spirit, authored by Sean Azaro, pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. Growing up in and around Pentecostal churches, I really learned to appreciate the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. But I also saw what I considered to be imbalance and excess in some of our churches when it came to how we taught about the infilling. Now available at Amazon.com, Sean Azaro shares his most requested teaching and radio broadcast series in a devotional form, encouraging you to embrace the Spirit-filled life. I wrote in a devotional style to encourage readers to examine the Scripture with fresh eyes and make room for the Lord to speak about the role of the Spirit in our lives. The goal of the whole book is to simply make you hungry for more of the Spirit. Order your copy of A Pilgrim's Guide to the Spirit-Filled Life by Sean Azaro today at Amazon or reachingforreallife.org. And now back to the message, Learning to See. This is Reaching for Real Life Radio. Okay, I want to take a moment and just recognize, um, this was odd. I mean, stop and think about it. Take your Bible lenses off. Maybe you've heard this story before. Take those off and just put yourself in the room. This is not just odd. This is an embarrassing moment. Picture this. This woman comes in and does what was just described. What was Jesus even doing during this time? What was he looking at? The, the, The first thing that happens is they're at dinner and this woman comes in, maybe it was an open courtyard, whatever the case, she's able to come in and you just see her. She just stands behind Jesus. They're reclining at a table. So the table's on, she's standing behind Jesus. So just the sight of her, nobody says anything. She doesn't say anything. But then the sound of her first weeping, but then sobbing. Because imagine the kind of grief, the kind of sobbing would have to happen to produce tears enough that she could literally wipe dirt off of Jesus' feet. She's sobbing uncontrollably. And then she gets down, and with her tears, she cleans his feet, and she wipes it with her hair. So it's the the sight of her presence, the sound of her sobbing, and then she breaks open this, this perfume expensive perfume and she anoints his feet now the room begins to smell of this perfume and nobody's saying a word what would it be like to be there was it awkward was it embarrassing i think so this was not normal how long did this whole thing take to unfold before even the conversation started before simon thought what he thought And Jesus said what he said. How long did that take? Five minutes? That's a long five minutes. With nobody saying anything. People kind of trying to avoid eye contact. Likely we're told by numerous commentators, just based on the description, this woman was probably a prostitute. She's probably a prostitute. And she'd heard about a teacher, a religious man, who loved sinners and who forgave sin. 
and she comes and she pours out her brokenness, her repentance, her love at the possibility of forgiveness on Jesus. And it's fascinating. Simon's problem, Simon the Pharisee, his problem was blindness. See, he couldn't see himself. He couldn't see the woman. He couldn't see Jesus clearly, none of them. The woman, on the other hand, saw herself with crystal clarity, and she saw Jesus with crystal clarity. I am a sinner who nobody will give me the time of day, and I've heard this man loves sinners. He forgives sinners. He brings sinners a message of hope and of redemption in Father's love. And she was drawn to him. Remember when Simon sat and thought, well, if this man were really a prophet. So here's, she's looking at Jesus and seeing him as the hope and possibly even the Messiah. And that phrase that Jesus said at the end, your faith has saved you. She understood intuitively who Jesus was. He was the promised one. While Simon is sitting there going, well, if this man were really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman. What's fascinating is verse 42. You remember what it said? Verse 42 was the one I pointed out to you. Jesus tells the story about the two people owe a debt, 500 denarii, 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. That's what's interesting. See, the whole idea was both of them were without hope. And I don't care if your sin is 500 denarii sin, maybe you've got a story that'll, that'll make people's ears turn red. Or maybe you think your sin's only 50 denarii sin. Either way, we don't have the money to pay it. We can't pay it. Our best effort, our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags. One of the things I just find fascinating is here you have this table of people and you see Jesus sitting and this woman comes and begins to minister to him. And Jesus is looking at the woman and Simon is looking at the woman. And they saw two very different things. They did not in any way see the same thing. And my question is, what would I see? What would you see if we're at that table, that woman comes in? Put it in a contemporary context. What would I see? Oh, God, this is weird. Oh, man, um, maybe we should call someone. Isn't there someone to help with something like this? What would I see? What would you see? And what did Jesus see? See, here's the main point. What you see when you look at people depends on where you look. They were looking at the same person. They were looking at a totally different piece of the same person. That's what I want us to talk about this morning. What you see when you look at people depends on where you look. John Burke, in his book, Unshockable Love, shares, and he shared it with us here at the Real Life Conference, did a beautiful job, and it's really a powerful, powerful picture. One of his favorite paintings, he actually lived in Russia and got a chance to see this painting live. I want to show it to you. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's by Rembrandt. Beautiful picture, and it depicts the homecoming of the prodigal son after he squandered everything, just takes his half of the father's inheritance, squanders it on sinful living, comes home literally hungry and homeless, and not even expecting to be taken back as a son. I just go, my father's hired hands do better than I'm doing right now. I'll just go back and ask for a job. And he goes back. Go, let's show the picture again. And, and you see the father with his hands on the son. What's interesting is you see other people looking around, and we know 
that what others saw, including his older brother, was a homeless-looking loser who had done this to himself and deserved everything he was getting. And they were right, by the way. That's not, that's not inaccurate. But what the father saw is his beloved son, who he raised for something more. Looking at the same kid, but they saw totally different things. And Burke tells about when he was in Russia and got to go to the museum where this, this painting is actually housed and how he got to see it and how that was a really monumental thing. But then he shared with us this illustration. He said, what if I went back to the museum another time and I went up through a back entrance and there in a dumpster I saw a painting just covered in mud, torn, just basically ruined. But I noticed that, that hand of the father on the son's shoulder. And I recognized it. That's a Rembrandt. That's a masterpiece. He said, what would I do? And I go, well, it's ruined. It's discarded. We'll go find another. No, no, no. I would, I would get that out because I'd recognize that is a masterpiece. Yes, it's covered in mud. Yes, it's torn. But I would take it to a master to be restored. That's what I would do. I wouldn't throw it out because of some mud. And John shared, see, that's the case of every single first person on the face of the planet. We were created to be a masterpiece. We were created by God. And when Jesus looked at people, he saw the masterpiece. What do we see? Do we see the masterpiece or the mud? They think we've so conditioned ourselves to look at the mud because, you know, nobody wants mud on a masterpiece. But if all you do is look at a masterpiece that is coated in mud, all you see is a collection of mud that's ruined and is not worth your time, that's what the Pharisees saw. That's what, that's what's the problem. What do we see when we look at people? Do we see the mud or the masterpiece? There's a powerful understanding. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10 says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. Even when we were dead in transgressions. See, there's not different levels of dead. Okay, I don't care what Princess Bride says. There is no mostly dead. No, no, you sinners, you were dead. I was only mostly dead. See, it doesn't work that way. No, we were dead. There's only one kind of dead, dead. So when Jesus said one debtor owed 50, 500 talents, the other owed 50, it, he's not saying there's different levels because the bottom line is our sin and the fact we couldn't pay it, we were dead. Stone cold dead. You and me, every one of us, so covered in mud, we had no hope of restoration. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one. And look at this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What I find compelling here is the New Living Translation 
translate this word, this word masterpiece, and that's a good translation. Handiwork's fine. Craftsmanship, that's fine. Translation. But masterpiece is also a beautiful translation. We are God's masterpiece. His handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if we who were dead are his masterpiece, created for something greater, do you realize every person, lost person on the face of this planet is his masterpiece, created to do good works? And right now, the sin, the, 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 the mud or the stain of sin and brokenness is covering them and keeping them from what God created them from, just like it was for you and I. Exact same thing. As we think about that, I want to ask three questions. Really important questions. Here's the first question. I want you to write these down. Do I see people like Jesus sees people? What do I see when I look at people? What do I see? Because the answer to this is I know far too often what I see first is the mud. Now, understand something. Jesus, Jesus sees sin. He hates sin because it kills the people he loves. It mars the masterpiece. But everything you see in the Gospels and how Jesus talked to people, in this particular case, he didn't bring up her sin. This is something that really bothers the Pharisees among us over and over again. It's like, Jesus, when are you going to blast them on their sin so that they'll straighten up? Well, Jesus understood the hurt and the pain of sin. And he actually was willing to go to the ultimate lengths to pay the penalty for that sin in giving his life. That's Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Reaching for Real Life Radio. And if you'd like to hear this full message in the series, Us and Them, it's available right now on demand at reallife.org. And while you're there, we'd appreciate your feedback. You can leave us a note on our Contact Us page. Or even better, your financial gift helps this radio ministry continue. Find that Give tab at reallife.org. But of course, you're invited to visit and join us at River City Community Church, located on Lookout Road right behind Rotama Park, next to the Real Life Amphitheater. If you'd like to call the church, the number is 210-490-5262, as Reaching for Real Life Radio is a service of River City Community Church. We hope you join us again next time as you travel the road to real life.